From the stuff your mother never told you to the stuff your doctor never learned, On Health is what happens when a midwife plus a Yale-trained MD shares about all things women's health, from periods to menopause, sex to reproductive health politics, motherhood to mental health. Join me for taboo-busting conversations that demystify and destigmatize our bodies, all while bridging the gap between conventional medicine and wellness. Along the way, we'll be exploring the science and wisdom of how our bodies work, what makes us well, what gets in the way, and how we can live our best lives on our terms. When it comes to women's health and well-being, there's nothing we won't talk about. The new medicine for women is here. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. Welcome to the podcast. How many times have you sat down to a meal already worried about the calories or something about the type of food you're eating or spent as much time while you were eating or after beating yourself up for what you're eating, having anticipatory guilt or calorie worry as much as you do pleasure? How often do guilt and feelings of loss of control outdo pleasure and nourishment when you're eating? Do you often have an inner food battle, the one between enjoying your food and dieting or eating at all and dieting? And do you struggle with digestive symptoms after eating? And have you ever eaten a whole meal and not remembered what you just ate or realized you inhaled your food so fast you never tasted it? Welcome to a special and slightly unusual episode of On Health. When I teach, I usually start my class, whether an evening class on Zoom or an all-weekend affair, with a meditation to help the group ground and center. Because usually folks are dropping in from a full day of work after getting their kids settled somewhere, or a long drive or flight battling traffic, time, and sometimes flight changes. The meditation experience activates the parasympathetic nervous system, getting us out of fight or flight and into a more vagus nerve mediated place of calm. Unlike adrenaline and cortisol driven by the sympathetic nervous system, creating fight or flight physiology, which is when we're stuck in the on mode for too long, the vagal response is actually nicknamed the rest and digest response. That should tell you something right there. In other words, you're creating a sense of inner calm. And that inner calm that's mediated by the vagus nerve helps our body digest and assimilate food. And that's going to be really relevant to what I share with you today. I was recently giving a Zoom webinar talk about digestive health to my gut reset group and to help everyone settle in for the talk and get us on the same page for the evening, I offered a guided visualization and it turned out that as I was doing it, it turned out to be on mindful eating and food relationship. And it was so popular and so therapeutic for the 80 or so women who gathered for the evening event that I knew I had to share something like that with you. But before I do, I want to talk more about our experience of our bodies and our relationship with our food, starting with my patient, Patricia. Reviewing her food journal at her visit with me, I was perplexed as to how Patricia had developed pre-diabetes in the one year since I'd seen her last. A businesswoman in her early mid-50s, She'd long been attentive to eating well and exercising regularly, was a healthy weight, and until this visit, 
had maintained normal blood sugar and insulin levels, important markers of glycemic control, which I tested because diabetes runs in her family. Her diet consisted historically of modest portions of healthy foods, mostly prepared at home, and eaten at reasonable intervals and times of day. Her latest numbers just didn't make sense based on her past food journals. Digging a little deeper, I asked Pat if anything had changed in her life. Less exercise, more stress. Well, she began. After dinner, almost every night now, I'm having a brownie, an ice cream sundae, or a cookie or two. Sometimes I'm also having something sweet in the late afternoon because my energy crashes. Her voice trailed off for a few seconds. My mom always made homemade baked goods. As a kid, we always had dessert after supper, and she died about a year ago. She began to cry softly, and through her tears, she said, I really miss her. I've started eating dessert every night. It's really important to me to connect to her that way. Now I understood. Of note, her mom had died of complications of type 2 diabetes. I get it. My grandmother always had a pot of freshly cooked soup, warm and waiting for me on the stove when I arrived at her house. The soup was usually vegetable barley or chicken noodle or a traditional Eastern European stew called flanken made with vegetables and beef short ribs. I would eat soup and she would ask me about my week or what had happened since I last saw her. When I reflect on my grandmother's love, my earliest to my latest memories always seem to include soup. Soup remains one of my most pleasurable foods today, even though she passed away nearly two decades ago. Food holds some of our deepest emotional memories. Not only does food bind us to positive experience, but negative experiences as well. One of my patients, an intelligent, athletic woman in her late 30s, told me that she was really chubby as a kid, while both her mom and her grandmother were slim. They had eating disorders. Mom was always weighing herself and skimping on food. And grandma would comment about her own body and my mom's a lot. When it came time for meals, because I was the only chubby kid in the family, I would get served different food than everyone else. Vegetable sticks, lean meat. I felt ostracized and embarrassed. At 16, I was hospitalized for anorexia. I still struggle with food. It's just not pleasurable for me. Eating is something I have to do, but I really fight with food in my head. I rarely meet an adult woman whose relationship with food is not or has not been stressful or fraught at some time. It's difficult for most of us to eat without thinking about weight or calories. Stress, confusion, guilt, and self-judgment are frequent mealtime companions. Food choices are often fraught with complexity. In an internal quest to be thinner or healthier, many women base their daily food intake on their daily weight, on how much we eat during the day or the meal prior, or on external testing that may have told us we're sensitive to this or that food. Sometimes disordered food thinking has to do with feelings of emptiness or loneliness. We reach for food for comfort to fill our empty spaces. The comfort, however, is generally short-lived, only to be replaced by self-loathing and feelings of being out of control for eating emotionally. Sometimes it has to do with a negative preoccupation about our bodies. We live in a culture filled with very specific images of the ideal body, which few of us look like. And though we know these are Photoshop-generated ideals, many intelligent women are nonetheless plagued with the pursuit of the perfect body. 
affecting how we eat. I personally have not been immune to food struggles. My grandmother, as loving as she was with nourishing me, and my mother were always on a diet. They lived in that transition between the 1950s and the 1980s, when the curvy, thin, ideal body was replaced by a very different type of body, which I'm going to talk with you about more. I also had an uncle who spent a lot of time at my grandmother's house. He was my mother's brother who only dated fashion models. I'm serious. And he would say, just as I was about to eat, if you don't watch it, you're going to get a big fat ass like your mother and grandmother. And yes, that's an exact quote. Those words are permanently emblazoned on my brain. Though I entered high school at five foot three and barely over a hundred pounds, I spent that year stress eating my way through home and long hours at a competitive high school, including a one and a half hour commute each day. Dunkin' Donuts colored, sprinkled, chocolate top donuts were my weekday breakfast. I finished my freshman year almost 40 pounds heavier. By the time I was 18, though, I learned to eat well and I settled into a healthy weight and a healthy food relationship. But 30 plus years later, I still sometimes hear my uncle's voice in my head just randomly. The drive for thinness in our culture is so significant and has been since the 80s, when first it was the slim athletic body that took the place of the desired, fuller, more curvy body of the 50s and 60s, which again was replaced by what was called the heroin waif or the heroin body of the 90s a desired thinness that has held sway since. The bikini body has been replaced by the desirable yoga body. And again, recently, and despite the horrors of the actual opioid epidemic, the heroin thin look, which it's again being called, is emerging as hashtag goals. Yes, made worse for girls and women by social media. Here are some of the statistics on the drive for thinness that also affects our relationship to our food because our food and body image are intimately intertwined. They're really not separated. Get this, 42% of first to third grade girls already state that they want to be thinner. 81% of 10-year-old girls are afraid of being fat. 51% of 9- and 10-year-old girls feel better about themselves if they're on a diet. 46% of 9- to 11-year-old girls are sometimes or very often on diets. 91% of women surveyed on a college campus had attempted to control their weight through dieting, and nearly a quarter of them dieted often or always. 86% of women 18 to 34 and 75% of us over 55 report body dissatisfaction. 85% of women and 79% of girls skip important activities due to body dissatisfaction. And in the U.S., only 24% of us report feeling comfortable in our own bodies. Over 75% of us would be willing to give up something we enjoy or care deeply about to magically obtain their idea of the perfect body, including disowning their pet or giving up on a year of their lives. 33% of typical dieters progress to pathological eating. 
and 20 to 25% of those progress to partial or full syndrome eating disorders. Yet the goals set out for women about this ideal body are unachievable for women across all cultures and ethnic backgrounds. The average American woman is five foot four inches tall and weighs around 150 pounds. The average American model is five foot 11 inches tall and weighs 117 pounds, thinner than 98% of otherwise healthy American women. In fact, a new type of disordered eating, orthorexia, the preoccupation with healthy eating and avoiding foods believed to be unhealthful has emerged. It's accompanied by some of the same obsessive thinking and behaviors as other eating disorders and can be restrictive enough in calories and nutrients to become dangerous. If you're compulsively cleansing, following highly restrictive diets, please take a close look at whether your relationship to food, even if the food choices seem healthy, is truly healthy. And is it pleasurable? As if the emotional and cultural issues that shape our relationship to food and our bodies aren't enough to complicate our lives, food addictions are just as real to addictions to cigarettes, many drugs, and alcohol that contribute to a mess of medical problems. I frequently hear patients say, I'm trying to control what I eat, but I have no self-discipline. So many women are struggling with loss of self-esteem due to perceived lack of self-control over the foods they're consuming and are beating themselves up for it emotionally. But food addiction isn't a matter of self-discipline. The big food industry is no dummy. Entire research and development teams at big food companies thrive on creating non-food junk with just the right amount of sugar, salt, or fat, or all three rolled into one tasty package to make us want more and more and more. And this programming starts from the time we're little toddlers when cereal boxes are placed at eye level at the grocery store. This is the very same neurologic wiring that's activated in drug addiction. The mindfulness practices I'm going to share with you today, especially when served with a side order of a blood sugar balancing meal, are a gateway to something different, to food stress freedom, to restoring nervous system health that's needed to realign our brains, appetites, and our eating, and how we feel physically, mentally, and emotionally while we're eating and afterward. My goal is to help you, and I'm constantly in the journey of helping myself with this too, especially as my own body changes as I go through various phases of my life, now menopause, so that food is your ally, not your frenemy. While mindful eating won't unpack everything, it's a really important place to start reclaiming personal food sovereignty and the inner peace that can help you reclaim and take ownership of your relationship with food to even begin to imagine what that could ideally look like. And what's really amazing is that we have an opportunity to reinvent this relationship every single time we sit down to a meal, every time we raise food to our lips. Janine Roth, author of Women, Food, and God, said, Awareness, not deprivation, informs what you eat. Presence, not shame, changes how you see yourself and what you rely on. Weaving mindfulness into our food relationship is shockingly simple and shockingly powerful. 
embodying presence and centeredness creates new neural pathways. And in neurology, there's a saying, what's wired together fires together. In other words, how we sit down to eat, how we experience our food and our meals rewires our entire relationship with food. And with that, rewire our entire relationship with our body and probably with a lot of other things that are tied in subconsciously that we don't even realize that we're stressing about and thinking about in similar ways, money, relationships, our careers, and much more. As we re-embody our relationship with food, we re-embody our relationship with ourselves on deeper levels. It also shifts us out of sympathetic drive. And sympathetic drive activates or exaggerates stress eating. And as I talk about in my books, Adrenal Thyroid Revolution and Hormone Intelligence, cortisol, which is activated in the stress response, hijacks our willpower, while adrenaline and cortisol also literally divert blood flow away from our digestive system. Mindfulness improves our vagal tone, and with it, our digestion, as well as our sleep, mood, immunity, and hormonal health. Bringing mindfulness to eating has also been studied, and it's been shown to improve digestion, reduce stress, improve cortisol, and for those of us who are struggling with our weight, can actually help us to eat less. And for those of us struggling with orthorexia and even things like food intolerances and restrictions can help us to eat, enjoy, digest, and respond better to those foods that we do want to eat and are part of a healthful diet. And I've seen this over and over and over again. I've had this conversation many times with my practice dietitian, Catherine Roll, where actually helping women to ease their relationship around food has reduced the stress response and has allowed them to tolerate foods that they thought they previously couldn't tolerate. And I'm going to talk more about this when it comes to carbs too, because a lot of women struggle with carb digestion. And I'm going to suggest one reason that we may do that and that we may make our ability to digest carbs even easier by mindful practice. That's what it is. It's a practice replacing the battles with food in our minds with intentionality, gratitude, and with that enjoying greater ease. Now, this is important all year round, but I was really inspired to share this with you, especially now with fall and winter holidays upon us, because these really bring up some deep emotional and often physical food challenges. You know, you're going to your home of origin, which may be wonderful and delightful, but it may also be fraught. We often have complicated food relationships that are intergenerational with our grandmothers, our aunties, our mothers. And so it seemed like the perfect time to share this episode, to share these thoughts, and to share this visualization meditation. I hope this episode is a gentle reminder of a new way of approaching your food and eating and experiencing meals, and that I hope it's especially nourishing and reminds you that food is nourishment and cellular information. So as we begin, you can listen and do this practice wherever you are right now. If you're driving, please keep your eyes open. If you're out walking or running or operating heavy machinery, definitely please keep your eyes open too. But you can still listen and take this in. 
If you're somewhere that you can settle in quietly for a few minutes, eyes closed, all the better. It's really a beautiful thing to replay this visualization as a practice daily for a week before one meal each day to deeply integrate this into your lifestyle. So that's one way that you can use this episode. Bookmark it, save it, and listen to it at the beginning of a meal. Just the part where I share the visualization with you. And make sure you share it with someone you love because you can talk about what your experiences are together. So let's get started. Just take a nice deep breath in through your nose and out through your mouth. Feel your feet on the ground, whether you're sitting or standing. And if you're lying down, then let yourself feel your back connecting, your bottom and your legs connecting with what you're laying down on or whatever you're sitting on. If you are sitting, feel your bottom really connecting with the chair under you, the floor, the cushions, so you actually get the sense of gravity pulling you down toward the earth. In other words, stop holding yourself up and let yourself just kind of relax and settle in. You can settle down, staying in good posture, but let your weight be supported by the earth, not by you. If you're laying down, Let yourself really sink into what you're laying on. Let yourself stop holding yourself up. Let yourself be held. Nice deep breath in through your nose. And a big releasing breath out through your mouth. Push that breath all the way out. Push the breath out so far that your lungs start to feel empty. So the next breath almost automatically comes in like a wave coming back to the shore. One more time, in through your nose, and all the way out through your mouth, really let that breath out fully. Waves going out to sea. And now let your breath come in a little more softly. In through your nose, out through your mouth. In through your nose and out through your mouth. On the next couple of breaths, imagine that you have walked into a beautiful room that has a table set. It can be set for just you, or it can be set for you and one other person or several other people. And imagine yourself walking up to the chair that's at the table. And you feel your hand on the back of the chair. You slide the chair back. You can hear the sound of the chair pulling back. And let yourself sit in the chair. The table may be close to the ground. And there may be cushions to sit on. If so, let yourself easily down to the cushion that you're going to sit on at your place setting. And just breathe in and breathe out. You notice that you have a lovely place setting in front of you. There are no electronics, no news, no computer open, no TV going. Just a relaxed meal. It could be that your food is on your very favorite plate that you have now in your kitchen. Or maybe you had a favorite plate 
at your mom's house or your grandmother's house. That plate was for you. Or maybe this is the place setting of your dreams. Maybe you've had your eye on some special pottery and that's what your setting is. Maybe it's at the most beautiful hotel you've ever stayed at or restaurant you've been to, but it's quiet and it's emptied and you're the guest of honor. You also notice that you have your fork and a spoon, a knife, and a beautiful linen napkin. You're sitting just about six inches or so, maybe 10 inches away from the table. You haven't fully pulled your chair up yet, so you do that now. You get just a little bit closer. And as you do, you can start to smell your food. Your hands are resting gently in your lap. and You're feeling really calm and peaceful in your body. You're noticing your feet on the floor and you're noticing the backs of your legs and your bottom touching the chair or the cushion. Again, you notice your hands in your lap and you're breathing and you're comfortable and it's lovely. You have literally no stress about the plate in front of you or the food on it or no distractions. You're not thinking about calories or food restrictions or allergies or foods you can't eat. Start to notice some of the foods on your plate. Foods that you really love to eat and that are healthy for you. They're healthy foods that your body's really excited about. And you start to notice that your digestive enzymes are working in your mouth. You're salivating just a little bit. You begin to notice the aroma of the food coming toward you. You see the colors of the bright vegetables on your plate, the oranges, the yellows, the greens. Now you start to imagine the aroma of the food rising up to you and you can feel your cells vibrating with anticipation to receive this food. And it can be any meal, breakfast or lunch or dinner. And you are luxuriating simply in the beauty of the food in front of you, the aroma, the environment, and the incredible relaxation that you feel, the ease you feel in your body. There's no rush to eat your food. There's no pressure about it getting cool or the temperature of the food. You're just sitting there relaxed and you start to experience a sense of gratitude rise up in you. Gratitude for the person or people who grew your food. Gratitude for sitting in a beautiful place. Gratitude for having food to eat. And you just start to feel a gratitude for your body and where you are right now with no judgment, just tender, compassionate, joyous, self-caring, gentle appreciation for who you are and all the things that brought you here to this moment. Take a deep breath in through your nose and exhale through your mouth. Another deep breath. Inhale and exhale. And when you're ready, open your eyes. That, my friends, is the meditation, the visualization, 
to bring to your next meal, to bring to the next time you eat. That feeling of ease in your body, that feeling that as you start to eat, you're relaxed, you're present, you're not distracted, you feel gratitude, you feel gentleness and self-love. And if you feel inspired, go ahead and hit pause. You're allowed to do that. And jot down some notes about how you're feeling right now. What came up for you as you were in the space of this visualization? And give yourself a gentle minute to kind of come back to present. It's so easy for us to rush into our meals, to not take the moment to appreciate our food, to remember after a meal what our food tasted like or smelled like, let alone the next day when someone asks you what you ate for lunch the previous day and you can't even remember. It's also really hard for a lot of us to sit down at a meal and see the meal not as nourishment, but as a fight like calories that we're concerned about eating too many of, or foods that we're afraid to eat, or the fear that we won't know how much to eat or when to stop. Or you might be pregnant or breastfeeding and have worries about whether you're getting enough and feeding your baby enough. For many of us, we've gotten so afraid to eat foods, and understandably so, because for some of us, those foods may actually make you not feel so good. Eating more mindfully means we'll be approaching our foods more intentionally. Actually savoring, tasting, chewing our food more thoroughly. And here's something really important. Digestion doesn't just start after we've eaten or while we're eating. Digestion starts actually when we start to think about food. And then when we see our food. And then when we smell our food, that is already starting to activate the digestive enzymes that are released when we chew through saliva in our mouth. And it's those digestive enzymes in our mouth that help us to digest carbs. That's where carbohydrate pre-digestion starts. So maybe some of us, particularly women who are struggling to digest our carbs, are struggling to digest them because we're eating so fast that we're not actually beginning the digestive process in our mouth. So it's not just our gut microbiome that's not online with digesting carbs. It's actually the fact that by the time our food gets to our gut microbiome, it was intended by nature and human physiology to already be in a pre-digested state. The microbiome is not supposed to digest undigested carbs. It's supposed to digest pre-digested carbs. So The act of slowing down to eat allows us to activate those salivary enzymes to begin our digestion so that when our food reaches our digestive system, it's already in the process of being physiologically digested. It also means that we're getting into a relaxed mode when we're eating. When we are under stress, when we're having anxious, worried thoughts, when we're in a rush, when we sit down to a meal already harried and anxious and stressed out, or when we're stress eating, which we're often doing to calm ourselves down because the act of eating carbs or sugar or fats calms the stress response down. 
But when we do that, when our stress response is activated, when we're in an SOSO, survival overdrive syndrome, overdrive mode, when that blood flow is diverted away from our digestive system, we're actually taxing our digestive system when we're eating. So in order to digest our food more readily, we want to get out of that mode and into a relaxed rest and digest mode before we even put that food in our mouth. Eating more mindfully also means we're going to eat the right amount. When we are eating in a stress mode, we tend to eat much faster. We eat much more than we need in a shorter amount of time. Whereas when we allow ourselves to eat in a more physiologically healthy way, more slowly, more in community, more relaxed, and more appreciation for our food, it actually takes about 20 minutes to get to satiety. So I invite you to take time before you eat your meals and do this through the holidays, but also make this a way of life to reconnect to calm, to reconnect as food, as nourishment for yourselves information for yourselves and for your soul, and to trust your deeper knowing, your ability to eat not just intuitively when you eat slowly, calmly, and savor your food, but for your ability to be aligned with that natural time it takes to get to satiety when we're eating more slowly. It also doesn't have to be a long time. Most of you don't have 20 minutes to meditate before you eat a meal, but we all have 30 seconds or a minute before each meal to just get quiet. And most days you can commit to one meal where you take a little bit longer. But whether it's 30 seconds or a minute or three minutes, you don't need more than that to drop out of your head and into your body, to feel gravity, to feel what you're sitting on, to get really centered in your body and away from your worries and away from your food worries, and just to start paying attention to reconnecting to your food as pleasure, as enjoyment, to simple eating, and to retaining that sense of calm as a touchstone that you can start to pay attention to that feeling as you eat. If you start to get anxieties, if you start to get worries, if you start to get jumbled, uncomfortable thoughts that are related to food, You can start to unpack those a little bit, or you can just return to that touchstone of inner calm, be gentle with yourself, and just observe those thoughts. A lot of women have what are called interojects, and I talk about these in my podcast episode on automatic negative thoughts. These are thoughts that we have that we hear either as our own voice or as another voice. So the example for me would be my uncle. And hearing that voice of him saying, oh, if you don't watch out, you're going to get a big fat ass like your mother and grandmother, right? That's an interoject. I actually can hear him saying that. I can actually visualize him saying that. And it doesn't have to be issues around food or eating disorders or body weight. It can also be around food scarcity. I've had many patients who grew up in really difficult times and women who have come from many different countries where food scarcity leads to confusing and conflicting feelings around food, sometimes undereating and being worried about food, or sometimes overeating almost as if to hoard the food because their brain is stuck in that survival mode of food literally being that difference between survival or not. A lot of us did grow up with food issues around people who made comments about food in their lives 
or we picked up fat phobia or food phobia. And these flood in from our culture without us even realizing it. And often we're unwittingly passing these on to our children and our children are already picking them up. As I shared with statistics earlier, through the media, through magazines, movies, all the things that we see. So we have to be mindful of interjects. There's a difference between obsession, which is that anxious, overthinking, churning, can't turn it off, and awareness, which is returning to that mindful place of presence. And when those thoughts come and go, watching them dispassionately without the emotion. And when you just start to notice them like clouds passing, on a day where you just, you know, there's a blue sky and those clouds wispily pass in front, just let them go by. I also believe that if we simply just pause before meals and sat and then digested for a few minutes after our meal or took a light walk, not only are we doing incredible things for our blood sugar, as I talk about in my podcast episode with glucose goddess Jesse Inshasp, but the amount of symptoms that would improve for so many people would be significant without spending a dollar on supplements or herbs or medical costs. Again, let's think about that. If we just chewed our food thoroughly, digested our carbs before they hit our stomach and our intestines, maybe we wouldn't need some of the probiotics and digestive enzymes that so many women feel they need because of digestive challenges. I know from experience that this slower, mindful eating can be tough for us as mamas. We tend to really shovel through our food when we've got little kids clamoring at the table. But I also want to emphasize two things. One, this is a really U.S. phenomenon. In fact, as I'm recording this for you, I'm in Portugal and I've been here for a month and I've traveled to many countries around the world where mealtime is graceful, calm, and respectful. Even when there are children at the table, there's time for contemplation, for conversation, and for easy food enjoyment. And what's really interesting is in all the countries I've traveled outside of the U.S., including Western European countries, where there's plenty of access to digital devices, kids don't have digital devices at the mealtime. They're either quietly listening to the adult conversation or quietly participating. So that brings me to this other part of this, which the modeling we do can really be powerful for our children just to have that moment of pause, of gratitude, of appreciation, and of calm, really recentering on our food before we just plunge in and eat it. And if all you do is pause before you take any actions with food, it's a huge, enormous step. And when we create this quiet, there's such a deep and profound ability to listen to and trust your gut to trust what you eat. All of that is predicated on having good open communication between the channels of your mind, your food, your nervous system, and your digestive system. With a more loving relationship with your food and your body, rather than a love-hate antagonistic stress relationship, you can really experience some profound changes. So here are some key points to get you started. Pick one meal a day to practice at. No TV, no electronics, no digital distractions. And of note, watching TV while eating actually increases our unnecessary food intake by at least 50%. Sit down to eat, always. Your car and your computer don't count as places to sit down. And ideally, 
put a placemat down. Even at work, you can use a cloth napkin that you keep folded in your lunch bag or at your desk. Set out a fork and a spoon and then your food. Enjoy 30 seconds of silence and gratitude with some deep breathing before you eat. Eat slowly. Chew. Taste your food. Chew. Set a timer for 30 minutes before you eat and take that entire time to have the gratitude, quiet, calming practice, savor your meal, and a few minutes after to just digest or get up and take a gentle, brief walk. No interruptions during your meal other than possibly some gentle conversation with someone you love who's sharing the meal with you. Learn to identify hunger. So eat only when you're truly hungry. A lot of feelings masquerade as hunger, boredom, fatigue, depression, anxiety, loneliness, etc., including thirst. Actually, thirst can masquerade as hunger. So learn the difference. If you're hungry and you're, but you're not sure, hydrate a little bit and see if you're still hungry. If you're unhappy, agitated, or if you're eating out of anything else but hunger, wait 15 minutes or longer to eat so that you only eat when you're hungry and when you feel calm. Also, similarly, when you're not sure what to eat or when you're kind of standing in front of that open pantry or fridge, hit pause for 30 seconds so that those impulses to eat something that is maybe not as intentional calm down and you can make better food decisions. Let go of the food battle in your head. There's no good girl versus bad girl, no cheater or good dieter. There's only choice and the choice is yours. So if you're in the middle of a food battle with yourself, if food battle or anxious thoughts start to arise while you're eating, put your fork or spoon or chopsticks down, take a few deep breaths, return to that calm, and just refuse to participate in that battle. Instead, consciously give yourself some understanding and patience and love. Once letting go of that battle becomes a habit, it does become second nature and the battle does start to cease. Now, at first, it can be a little tricky to know what your body needs or how much your body needs, but learning to become body wise, really listening to your body can help a lot. One question that I like to teach my patients to use And this is really apropos when they're standing in front of the pantry or standing in front of the fridge or they're at a restaurant trying to decide what to eat. And there are all these choices, some of which may be better for them than others, but they're feeling pulled to the ones that aren't as good, but they want to lean into the healthier ones. Simply close your eyes, take four deep breaths in through your nose and out through your mouth and ask yourself what your body is really hungry for. Nobody has ever told me his or her body is really hungry for a Twinkie. Usually the answer is it's a salad or something with protein or some veggies or a piece of fruit. Sometimes somebody really does just want that cookie and that's okay too, as long as you're eating it, feeling really good about yourself and really good about your food. You'd be amazed at how wise you are and what information you'll get just from listening to your intuition and your body when it comes to making food choices. Also, practice harahachi bu. This is a Japanese term that means eating until 80% full, being satisfied but not stuffed, which is an art because as kids, we were taught to eat until we cleared our plates, regardless of satiety. And most food servings, at least in the US, are far more than one individual portion that we're given. 
many of the foods in the standard American diet confuse our ability to tell when we're full. They were actually designed to do that in labs to increase our consumption of them. So it takes some paying attention and adjusting down large portions to be able to identify that feeling of being satisfied that precedes the feeling of feeling full. Once you figure it out, you learn the difference between harahachibu and feeling really comfortable in your body and overeating. If eating too fast is a problem for you, here are a couple of tricks. One is to eat with chopsticks if you don't usually do so. It's harder to eat fast. You can't really eat super fast or shovel your food in with chopsticks. Or try eating with your non-dominant hand. So if you're right-handed, eat with your left hand. If you're left-handed, eat with your right hand. It's really cool because it actually does some interesting things to your brain when you do that. And it's really cool also because harahachibu is associated with greater longevity. Remember, you have the visualization meditation in this episode to return to as a touchstone. And so many women tell me that listening to me sharing a visualization or meditation helps them to anchor my voice in their head as a sister on the journey. So if listening to your own voice is still fraught or hard to do, you can re-listen to me sharing that meditation, that visualization with you and consider me a sister on your journey. So feel free to do that. I wish you a whole new and loving relationship with food and your body. No resolutions, no battle, no struggle needed. Starting right now. I'll be right there practicing with you. See you next time. I hope you enjoyed this episode, that it helped you to feel seen and heard, and perhaps that it even brought you some aha moments. Please share the love by sharing this with a friend or someone in your life who could benefit from the kinds of things we talk about in this space. Also, make sure to follow me on Instagram at dr.avivaram and go to avivaram.com to join the conversation about the show on my blog. While you're there, you can sign up for my free newsletter with tips on taking back your health. Be sure to leave a rating and a review for the podcast and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every week. Can't wait to see you next time.